You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Um, John 6, chapter, uh, John 6, 1. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the lake realised that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because of the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. They then asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one who has sent, has him sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, 
Always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except for the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I will live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, G'day everyone. If you haven't met me, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Darabin Prezi. Uh, And it's great to be diving into John 6 this afternoon. Before we do that, I did just wanted to draw attention to one other announcement on the welcome card. On the welcome card, you can find the Bible reading, you can find an outline of my sermon. You can also find an announcement about a training seminar that we have running next Saturday, March the 26th. Uh, It's a training session in domestic and family violence. And we all know, tragically, and I don't say, like, we shouldn't use that word tragic lightly, should we? But tragically, domestic and family violence is all too common in our community. And it's really important for particularly the leaders of our church uh, to be trained and skilled up, so all the elders uh, attending this training. Uh, but we wanted to open it up to anyone who also wanted to learn more about how we can be a community that cares well for those who are experiencing domestic and family violence. Uh, so please, uh, if you're interested in that, uh, there's an email there for Ken. You can email an expression of interest uh, along to him, uh, just so we can let Fiona, who's running the training, uh, give her a bit of an idea of how many people are coming. But please have John chapter 6 open. Uh, let's pray before we get into it. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word and we long this day uh, for, by the power of your spirit, uh, that you might 
open our eyes, our hearts, our minds uh, to see our Lord Jesus and to be fed by him. Uh, For we read in this word uh, that he is the bread of life, uh, the one who satisfies our deepest needs. Uh, Please, Father, may we meet with Jesus this day. In his name we pray. Amen. I can still remember uh, when I was about eight years old, uh, reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe for the very first time. Uh, Maybe it wasn't eight, maybe I'm kind of giving my kind of reading skills a bit of advanced kind of thing. But anyway, uh, reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and immediately, maybe you were the same, my imagination was captured by the idea that you could enter into a completely different realm, a whole other world, the world of Narnia, simply through a wardrobe. A wonderful thought. Uh, I've felt the same since, uh, as I've read Harry Potter, you know, platform nine and three quarters. There you are, just on the platform, all of a sudden into the magical world of Hogwarts. Or the magic faraway tree. I'd imagine that, just being able to climb up a tree and pop into whichever lands at the top that week. And when I was eight years old, my mind was captured by the wonder of entering into Narnia through a wardrobe. Recently, I've been rereading the the Chronicles of Narnia with Ada, you might have gathered. Uh, She's now eight years old, so it it appears that's a bit of a rite of passage in the Boyd family. Uh, And so we've been reading it again. Again, my imagination captured by this thought of entering into a completely different realm. Why is it that we love these stories about entering into a whole other world? I reckon at least part of it is that we live in a culture that constantly tells us uh, that this material world is basically all there is. Uh, The sooner you realise that, the better off you'll be, the more in touch with reality you'll be. You might like ideas about Harry Potter or Hogwarts or whatever it might be, but get real. This is materialism, right? This material world is all there is. We hear this in one way or another all the time. And I reckon we feel ripped off. I reckon we've got an innate sense that there is something more beyond this world. uh, Beyond this world, rather. We talked about funerals last week. Very few funerals you go to do people go, well, that's that for Bill. Almost always there's some sense that he's watching over us. He's playing, you know, cricket up in the sky or something. We all have this innate sense that there's something beyond this world, that this material world isn't all there is. We long for that. We long for the supernatural to break into the natural, for the creator to break into his creation, for the heavenly to break into the earthly. We long for this. And John chapter 6 says we long for that because that's what happened in the ultimate story. We love these stories because, not, uh, because in the ultimate story, not in a kind of Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe fairy tale sense, but in a real time and space history sense, the creator entered into his creation. As we sang earlier, the word became flesh. The supernatural entered the natural. What do we see in John chapter 6? We see that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God himself who came from heaven to earth to offer abundant satisfaction, sure guidance and eternal life to whoever would believe in him. That's my summary of those 59 verses 
Right? Jesus is the Lord, God himself in human form, who came from heaven to earth to offer abundant satisfaction, uh, sure guidance and eternal life to all who would believe in him. So that's my summary. I want you to check if you think my summary is accurate, right? So you should have your Bible open in John chapter 6. Uh, And first, we're looking at verses 1 to 15, uh, where we see that Jesus is the Lord, the prophet from heaven, uh, who can abundantly satisfy all of your needs. This is verses 1 to 15. So if you look in verse 1, John tells us there uh, that sometime after, perhaps not immediately after, uh, Jesus' confrontation with the Jewish leaders that we saw in chapter 5, sometime after that, Jesus and his disciples hop in a boat and they head across to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, John also says it, it's sometimes known as the Sea of Tiberias. So that was necessary because uh, Herod Antipas had put a little village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was named after the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And it wasn't that long before everyone would go, oh, that's the Sea of Tiberius rather than the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and so John's really keen that we understand the geography. Like, he's like, that's the sea that I'm talking about. Uh, so they head across the other side of this lake. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are there. Uh, And take a look in verse 2. A great crowd of people followed Jesus. And it seems like a real success story, doesn't it? A couple of chapters uh, previously, John the Baptist said, Jesus must become greater. The crowds must flock to him. And so we're like, well, okay, this is is great. Uh, But notice why they're following Jesus. They're following Jesus because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with seeing the miraculous signs Jesus performed. I mean, they're kind of visible, right? Like, that's the point. You're supposed to see them. What's the problem? The problem is that the signs are supposed to point to something greater than the sign itself. It'd be a bit like if you were here in Thornbury and you were really physically hungry, uh, but you thought, I'm just going to stop right here at the sign for Welcome to Thornbury. Now, it might be a wonderful sign, but the reality is it's not going to satisfy your physical hunger. If you want your physical hunger to be satisfied, you've got to go to what the sign is pointing to. Get yourself a burger from Mr. Burger. Then you'll be satisfied, right? The same with Jesus' miraculous signs. In and of themselves, they will not satisfy you. They're supposed to point you to something greater, to someone greater, to Jesus. It's a relationship with Jesus that will satisfy your deepest spiritual needs. That's that's the problem with these crowds following Jesus, uh, simply because of the miraculous signs. In verse 3, we see that Jesus goes up a mountainside. Uh, If you know the kind of geography of the Holy Land, this might be uh, what's known as the Golan Heights. You can Google that later on, Golan Heights. Uh, And in verse 4, John wants us to know that all of this is happening around about the time of the Jewish festival of Passover. Uh, That's important. This is the first of lots of connections between John chapter 6 and the story of Israel in the book of Exodus, Israel in the wilderness. 
So maybe you, you remember, we, we preached on Exodus last year. Uh, you, you might remember that uh, after Israel was set free from Egypt by the blood of the very first Passover lamb, but the lamb was uh, put across the door frames of the Israelites' homes uh, so that the judgment of God passed over their homes. They were set free from Egypt. Uh, and then after they came out of Egypt, Moses, the leader of God's people, went up a mountainside. Uh, so what have we got here? We've got Jesus, who John has already told us is the lamb of God. The Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the ultimate Passover Lamb, uh, the, the one who's going to achieve the ultimate exodus. Right? Not just setting people free from political slavery or economic slavery, but spiritual slavery. Slavery to sin and to death. And like Moses, Jesus goes up a mountainside. These are the connections that we're supposed to see right at the start of John chapter 6. So Jesus is settling down, you know, maybe for some quality time with his disciples uh, and have a look in verse 5. Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him. Uh, He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, just as a bit of an aside, um, You notice that even though Jesus went away, probably trying to get away from the crowds to have some quality time with his disciples, when this massive crowd comes to him, he's not irritated and frustrated like I would have been. The elders of DPC yesterday had a a retreat, some great quality time together. It was good fun. It had been planned for a really long time. And let me say, I would not have been filled with compassion if a massive crowd interrupted that. But here Jesus, his first thought isn't, ah, get these crowds away from me. It's Philip. How can we feed them? Where are we going to get some bread? And now, of course, Jesus knows where they are. They're in a bit of a remote spot on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's not like they can nip to the shops to buy some food. Jesus knows that. In fact, John tells us, uh, if you take a look there in verse 6, he only said this uh, because he wanted to test Philip. He already knew, uh, he already had in mind, rather, what he was going to do. So when Jesus asked this question, he already knows that he's going to feed this massive crowd miraculously. He's God, uh, who's the ruler over all of creation. He's not bound by the laws of creation. He comes from outside the creation, so he can feed this massive crowd. He's going to do that miraculously. Just as after the Lord set his people free from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, uh, he fed them in the wilderness with bread, that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to feed his people with bread. It's no accident that it's with bread. But but, uh, Philip doesn't understand that. Look in verse 7. He doesn't understand the test that Jesus is giving him. After the miracles Jesus has performed, maybe we could have expected Philip to say, well, maybe we don't need to go to the shops, Jesus. You could feed these people. But no, Philip says, even if we could go to the shops and buy some food, we'd only be able to buy enough for everyone to get a tiny bite. No one would be satisfied, Philip says. Andrew chimes in in verse 9, saying, well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish. But how far 
will they go among so many? You know, he's clutching at straws. Well, I know this boy's got some food, but what's the point, Jesus? But notice what Jesus does. In verse 10, Jesus asks his disciples to to get this massive crowd to, to sit down in a place, we're told, where there's plenty of grass. Again, you know, not central, but it's interesting, like, that... This is to tell us, again, that this is around the time of the Passover, April or May in the year, so the sun hasn't burnt off all the grass yet. Well, there's plenty of green, lovely green grass for the crowd to sit on. That's John's point. It's near the Passover. And Jesus is ready to feed this massive crowd. John tells us how many, how many men, 5,000 men there, probably fifteen or 20,000 people, if you count all the women and children. Jesus is ready to feed this crowd. Verse 11, he gives thanks to his father for even these five loaves and two fish are a wonderful gift from him. The earth is his and everything in it. He gives thanks to his father. But more importantly, notice in verse 11 that once the food is distributed, each person ate as much as they needed. They didn't just get a single bite. In pre-COVID times, it's not like they passed around the loaf and they kind of just each had a little nibble. No, each one ate as much as they needed. They were well fed and satisfied. In fact, look at the start of verse 12. John says, when they had all had enough to eat. By his miraculous power, Jesus is able to abundantly satisfy the needs of this massive crowd. I say abundantly satisfy because, look, there's leftovers in in the rest of verse 12. 15 or 20,000 people, five loaves, two fish, and there's a whole lot of leftovers. The point is Jesus is able to abundantly provide for our needs. He has no shortage of resources. The whole earth is at his disposal. He's able to provide for the needs of all his people. All his people, that's their backs. How many, call it out, how many uh, baskets of leftovers are there? Twelve, yeah. Well, so that's about the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles that Jesus has selected, has appointed. It's a kind of picture of Jesus' abundant provision for the fullness of his people. All twelve tribes, all twelve apostles, all of them are going to be abundantly satisfied by Jesus. That's what Jesus has to offer. And Jesus can abundantly satisfy the needs of all his people and indeed your needs. Which uh, perhaps, uh, as Stu uh, led his kind of call to worship today, he said, uh, many of us have had times this week where we've felt dissatisfied. And maybe you're someone who professes faith in Jesus, you're a Christian, and yet this idea of Jesus abundantly satisfying your needs seems pretty foreign. Why is that? Well, the truth is, we all know that the circumstances of our lives are so unique and individual, aren't they? It's hard for me to stand up and hear and say, well, these, that's, this is why you're not satisfied. I'd love to talk to you about it. But let me just share three things that I think come out of this passage in particular. Three kind of general principles. The first is that it's very possible to be amongst the, the crowd who's checking Jesus out and not really have faith in Jesus. We'll see that as this chapter unfolds. 
There are many in this crowd who are attracted to Jesus. They're drawn to Jesus, but they don't really believe in Jesus. And let me say, that's a recipe for not being satisfied. You say, I'm a Christian and I'm not satisfied. And Jesus might say, like he said at the end of John chapter 2, though many people believed in him, Jesus hadn't entrusted himself to them. So if you're not satisfied, it could be, I'm not saying it is, (laughs) it could be because you haven't actually come to Jesus and put your faith in him, depended on him. But there are many people here who have done that. And so I think there's two other things from this passage that could be helpful. The second thing, you notice in this passage that Jesus abundantly satisfies the needs of his people. He doesn't actually satisfy every want or desire that we might have. And some of our discontent and dissatisfaction in life, and certainly for myself, is because well, there's a bit of a mismatch between what I think I need and what's just my wants and desires. And I often think, well, Jesus, I actually think I know better what I need than you do. And that breeds a real sense of bitterness and dissatisfaction in my life. So I guess I'm saying our Lord Jesus is good. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he will provide for all of your needs. And the other thing here is to notice that the crowds only end up being satisfied by Jesus when they bring the little that they have to offer to Jesus. And he does more with that than they could have ever imagined. He solves their problem of hunger because they humbly come to him with the little that they have. And I reckon sometimes our dissatisfaction in life comes from the fact that we've got all sorts of problems and issues in life and we're desperately trying to sort them all out by ourselves. Instead of humbly coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, this is the little, this is the little emotional strength I have to offer, the little physical health I have to offer, the little money I have to offer, the, the small amount of gifts and expertise I have to offer, and maybe, maybe you could just do more with that than I could ever hope or imagine. It's much more satisfying to come to Jesus with the little that you have than to cling to the little that you have and try to sort out life by yourself. Just a few thoughts for if you know Jesus and yet you feel dissatisfied. We'll take a look in verse 14. We see here that the crowd is starting to join the dots between Jesus' miracle of feeding a whole bunch of people with bread in a remote place near the Passover, right, they're starting to join the dots between that and the experience of Israel in the wilderness. In particular in verse 14, you'll see there, it's like their light bulbs are going on and they're remembering a promise that God made to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. God said to Moses, one day I'm going to send a prophet that is the greatest prophet, a greater prophet than you. The people are thinking, well, maybe Jesus is that prophet. Jesus knows that's what they're thinking. In fact, if you look in verse 15, he knows that they're going to try to make him king by force. So Jesus withdraws up the mountain. See, the crowds, they're kind of onto it, aren't they? They're saying, well, if Moses, the kind of original prophet, if he had the kingly role of setting God's people free from political slavery in Egypt... 
Well, maybe Jesus, if he's the greatest prophet, maybe he also would be a king. A king who's going to set us free from the oppressive rule of the Romans, who are messing up all our Jewish religion, you see. That's what the, that's what the crowds are thinking. Now, they're kind of onto something, right? But because we know that, that, that one of the key purposes in John's gospel is to convince us that Jesus is God's king. But he's a king that's going to bring about a liberation that's much greater than political or economic liberation, right? It's spiritual liberation. And how's he going to bring about that liberation? It's not by force, by power, by conquest. It's by the weakness and suffering and death on the cross. So the crowds are kind of onto something, but Jesus knows they don't get, really get it. And so he withdraws. Right, verses 1 to 15, Jesus is the Lord. He's God himself in human form, the, the prophet who came from heaven to earth to abundantly satisfy all our needs. Uh, verses 16 to 21, Jesus is the Lord, uh, the Son from heaven, uh, who offers us sure guidance in the storm. Take a look in verse 16, Jesus' disciples, they get into the boat, heading back across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is up the mountain at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it seems a bit strange to us. Sometimes they call it a lake. And I reckon we sometimes think, in, you know, lake is pretty small. How could there be massive storms on the lake? But it's actually, it's a pretty big lake, an inland lake, a big sea. It had mountains all around it, so there was cold air on the mountains and warm air over the sea and crashed together lots of storms on the Sea of Galilee. So looking at verses 18 and 19, John says, A strong wind was blowing and the water grew rough. When they had rode about three or four miles, again, an indication of how wide the lake is, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. Now, I reckon if you've been around church for a while, sometimes we can get a bit judgy with the disciples. Oh, why were they frightened? You know, of course Jesus would be walking on water. What do you mean, of course? I mean, like, it's not every day you see someone walking on water, is it? But again, Jesus is God in the flesh. The God who is outside of creation isn't bound by the laws of creation. If he wants to go for a stroll on the water, he's very free to do so. That's the point. So Jesus reassures his disciples in verse 20, it really is me, it is I, it's not a ghost. Right? It's me in the flesh, so don't be afraid. And in verse 21, the disciples take Jesus into their boat and notice John says, immediately the boat reached the shore. Now, I don't know if you noticed when Rob read the chapter, but verses 1 to 15, they have a lot to say about bread. And verses 22 to 59 have a lot to say about bread. It's a bit random, isn't it, that John slots this in, in the middle, which has nothing to say about bread. Why is that? It's because of what it tells us about who Jesus is. In the Old Testament, the only one who had power and authority over the ocean, the sea, the wind and the waves, over the storms, the only one was God himself, the Lord, Yahweh. It was only the Lord who had power and authority over the storm. So later on, you should read Psalm 107, verses 23 to 30. 
But in Psalm 107, verses 23 to 30, some sailors go out to sea, they get caught in a storm, they cry out to the Lord, and then in verses 29 and 30, we read this. Uh, The Lord, that's God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. The sailors were glad when it grew calm. And the Lord, notice this last bit, the Lord guided them to their desired haven. You see, Jesus is the Lord. He's he's the kind of supernatural breaking into the natural, the, the creator breaking into his creation, the one who has authority over every part of his creation. Even the most violent storm isn't beyond his control. And notice the Lord in Psalm 107 guided the sailors to their desired haven. What does Jesus do? He gets in the boat and immediately... The disciples are safe. Immediately, they're safe at the shore. But Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God sent from heaven, who uh, offers us sure guidance and peace and security, even in the midst of the greatest storm. A third, verses 22 to 59, Jesus is uh, the Lord, the bread from heaven. Uh, who offers eternal life to all who believe in him. Uh, If you scan verses 22 to 24, you see the crowds get up the next day. I don't know, they've been camping on the other side of the sea. Uh, They notice that Jesus' disciples, the the boat is gone, Jesus isn't there. Uh, They're kind of like, well, where's Jesus gone? Uh, They're a bit confused. And so they get in their boats and they go back across to the other side of the lake. Uh, In verse 25, they find Jesus Now, we know from the very end of the passage, verse 59, they find Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum. That's where they find Jesus. And you see they're confused. They say, Rabbi, uh, when did you get here? Right, subtext. How did you get across the lake without a boat? Because we saw your disciples go off in one. And how did you get here so quickly? If you weren't in a boat, then, you know, it's, it's a long walk around the lake. How did you get here so quickly? In verse 26, Jesus kind of ignores their question. You notice that? He just starts talking about the very heart of the matter. And the context here, we do have to remember that almost all of this crowd would have been subsistence farmers. They were actually living day to day, needing bread each day to survive. That, that was there. Like we pray, give us today our daily bread when our you know, pantry is fully stocked and whatever. But these guys really did need their daily bread. And so Jesus says to him in verse 26, you guys are only coming to me because I gave you your daily bread yesterday and now you want it for today. Like treating Jesus like some kind of cosmic vending machine that's just going to keep giving out of bread each day. So in verse 27, Jesus says to them, stop working for bread that's going to be good for a day and mouldy tomorrow. Start working for bread that will last forever. Bread that will endure to eternal life, Jesus says. And Jesus says, you notice in verse 27, this is the bread that only he can give. Only the Son of Man can give this bread. And so the crowds naturally say, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Like, What does the work look like that gets us this bread that's going to last forever? The work of God is this, Jesus said, to believe in the one he has sent. 
So what does it look like to do the works that God requires for you to have eternal life? It's interesting, isn't it? It's not a massive list of rules that you have to obey, a whole string of hoops that you've got to jump through. If you serve enough and give enough and sacrifice enough over a long enough period of time, uh, maybe you've done the works that God requires to have eternal life. Jesus says it's simply to believe in him who the Father sent. That is the works that God requires. So in verses 30 and 31, the crowd say, well, why should we believe in you? Look at those verses. Why should we believe in you? In the book of Exodus, God empowered Moses to perform incredible miracles. And so the people of Israel believed in Moses. What are you going to do? That seems a bit rich since most of them were fed miraculously the day before. But anyway, they want another miracle to say, why should we believe in you? In verses 32 and 33, Jesus basically says, you want a miracle from heaven? Moses brought bread from heaven. In me, God himself has come down from heaven. What's the greater miracle, Jesus is saying? You think Moses is great for God working through him to bring some bread, manna from heaven. In me, God himself has come down from heaven. I am the true bread from heaven, Jesus says. Again, the crowds don't get it. Verse 34, they ask Jesus to give them this bread from heaven. This is a theme in John's gospel, isn't it? People thinking overly kind of materialistically, literally, physically. They think Jesus is talking about God sending a loaf of bread down from heaven every day to satisfy them. He's actually talking about sending himself down to satisfy their spiritual needs. So verse 35, Jesus is much more direct, isn't he? I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. These crowds want to get stuff from Jesus because they think that in getting more loaves of bread from Jesus, they'll be satisfied. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't just need stuff from me, you need me. We can do that, can't we? We want the, maybe the benefits that Jesus offers. I'm happy to have some forgiveness or meaning or purpose, a little bit of extra hope or joy in my life. Like, I'm happy for all the benefits, I, I just... Not sure if I've got much time for Jesus. Jesus says, if you want all the benefits, you've got to come to me. I am the bread of life. So Jesus says, the way to enjoy this bread of life is to come to him. And this is one aspect of what it means to do the work that God requires. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It actually means to come to him. But notice verse 36. Perhaps these crowds were thinking, well, box ticked. We've come to you, Jesus. But what does Jesus say? He basically says, well, even though you're coming to me, you're not really coming to me in faith. But that won't be the case with everyone. Look in verse 37. Jesus says that before the Father sent him into the world, he gave him certain people. A certain people who would come to him And believe in him. Notice that Jesus says, all the people that the Father has given me will come to me. From our human perspective, I don't know what sort of spiritual journey you're on. 
But we can often feel like we're stubbornly resisting God, we're digging our heels in, we don't want a bar of what God's doing. Jesus is saying that if the Father, God the Father, gave you to Jesus his Son before the creation of the world, then sooner or later he will move you to come to Jesus. It won't be kind of twisting your arm behind your back as if you won't want to come. He he will change your heart, he'll change your mind so that you will willingly and humbly come to Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. And when you come to Jesus, Jesus says he will never drive you away. He won't cast you off. He'll never ditch you. In fact, in verse 39, take a look in verse 39. And notice Jesus says he will never lose anyone that comes to him, that the Father has given him. Now, I'm always losing things, particularly since my vision's getting worse. I still got to change my habits to kind of put things in certain places. I'm always losing things, misplacing stuff. I reckon some of us think that Jesus is like that. Jesus says no. Jesus doesn't, he's not inattentive. He doesn't lose focus. He doesn't forget where his people are. If you come to Jesus in faith, he will hold on to you and raise you up to have eternal life on the last day. And notice verse 40, that your security as one of God's people isn't in the strength of your will, but your ability to hold on to God. Jesus says it's in the strength of his Father's will. And what's the Father's will? His Father's will isn't that people would be lost. His Father's will is that Jesus would hold on to everyone who comes to him and raise them up at the end. What confidence and assurance we can have if we come to Jesus in faith. And notice another aspect of what it means to come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus. In verse 40, it means to look to Jesus. We looked at this in John chapter 3. It's another connection to the, uh, to the story of Israel in Exodus. Remember, the the people of Israel rebelled against God. They rejected the rule of Moses, his chosen leader. And so as a judgment, God sent that plague of snakes among them. And the only way they could survive and live was to look to the bronze snake that was lifted up on a pole by Moses. That was their only hope of life. Likewise, here, Jesus is saying that our only hope of life, as people who have sinned against him, and in our sin we've cut ourselves off from the source of all life in Jesus, and so our only hope of life is to look to him, to look to him in faith, lifted up, not a bronze snake lifted up on a pole, uh, but a a beaten and suffering saviour lifted up on a cross. In your place, in my place, for our sins. What a wonderful offer, simply to come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to look to Jesus, and you'll have life now and forever. But the people grumble, just as the Israelites grumbled in the wilderness, verses 41 and 42. Now, I think Rob might have even had a a slight chuckle when he was reading these verses. They are kind of funny. I reckon maybe verses 41 and 42 we can relate to. Again, we could perhaps judge the crowds a little, but the reality is they know Jesus' story. They know his parents. They've hung out with Mary and Joseph. They've seen Jesus working in the carpentry shed with Joseph. They're like, where does this guy get off claiming now to be sent from heaven? Like, It's a fair question, isn't it? It's a very difficult thing to believe 
In fact, in and of ourselves, it's impossible to believe. Look in verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I'll raise them up on the last day. Yes, Jesus is calling you, calling us to come to him. But he acknowledges that none of us will come to him with real faith, recognising who he is as the son of God who became flesh. None of us will come to him in that way unless God the Father draws us to him in that way. So if you're here today and you're checking out church, you're checking out Jesus, if you find yourself looking to Jesus, wanting to come to Jesus, wanting to believe in Jesus, feeling drawn to Jesus, then there's a fair chance that the Father is drawing you to Jesus. This is not something that someone does unless God is at work in their hearts, Jesus says. And if that happens in your life, it's incredible. Verses 45 and 46, Jesus says if you come to him, you actually end up being taught by God. Just as the Old Testament prophets predicted, Jesus Jesus says, you know, no one has, remember John chapter 4, God is spirit, no one has seen God the Father, but Jesus says, I'm the son of the Father, I've seen the Father, and so in my teaching, I reveal the Father. And when you are taught by Jesus, it's like you're being taught by God himself. What is this incredible privilege of coming to Jesus, believing in him, looking to Jesus? But what does it mean to do the works that God wants so that you can have eternal life? It's to believe in Jesus. It's to look to Jesus. It's to come to Jesus. Uh, In verses 47 to 51, it's also to eat Jesus, which is a bit strange, isn't it? A strange turn in the the conversation. Uh, But that's what Jesus says. You see the connection again to the story of Israel in the wilderness. You imagine God sends bread down from heaven each day. If the Israelites wanted to experience the physical benefits of that bread, it wasn't sufficient for them to draw near to it. It wasn't enough for them to just know lots of stuff about the manna from heaven or to hang out with other people who were eating the manna. If they wanted to receive the physical benefits of the bread that God sent down from heaven, they actually had to eat it, had to swallow it, take it into their being. And Jesus is saying the same is true with him. He's not advocating for cannibalism or some sort of hyper-spiritualized, you know, Hannibal Lecter type scenario. He's saying that if you want to receive the spiritual benefits of my broken body and shed blood on the cross, you actually have to take me into your life, into your heart, into your mind, into the very heart of your being. I guess maybe a way of thinking about it is if you, were, if you found yourself in a situation where you were terminally sick and you knew that there was a medication that if you took it, you could have life now and forever. Again, it's not sufficient to just check out the medication, read up about it on the internet, hang out with other people who are having the medication, sit next to the medication... Like, what, you've actually got to swallow the medication, don't you? You've got to take it into you. 
Here Jesus is saying that the problem of our sin is so deep, it's like, spiritually speaking, we're terminally sick. Our sin separates us from the source of life and goodness and every blessing, everything good. And so we're terminally sick. We're destined to die. And the only way, the only hope, the only cure is to come to Jesus and get him into you. He is the bread of life. It's taking Jesus into your heart, into your mind, into your very being in such a way that it transforms you, that it brings life now and life forever. Owning personally that Jesus' body was broken, his flesh was broken, his blood was shed on the cross, and not just for sin in general, but for your sin, for your darkness, for your selfishness. And Jesus says if you come to him in that sort of faith, taking him into your heart and mind, uh, then you will have eternal life. How could it be any other way? Look at verse 56. If you eat and drink, Jesus are the one in whom is life. Then how could you not? Like Jesus, the, the source of all life, is in you. You will remain in him and he will remain in you, Jesus said. Verse 57, if you come to Jesus in this sort of faith, you're eternally united with him. So just as the, uh, the Father and the Son are united with one another, the life of the Father is in the Son, uh, so also if you come to Jesus in this sort of faith, if you take Jesus into you, then the life of the Son is in you. I reckon most of us go through life feeling pretty ripped off. We're hungry for something more. We kind of expected something more. We long for something more. We long for some sort of real connection with the supernatural, with the spiritual, with the heavenly. And what we see in this passage is that we long for these things and we love stories where this sort of thing happens because they're just a reflection of the ultimate story of the story of God and his world, of the story of God becoming flesh in Jesus, God coming from heaven to earth as the prophet from heaven to abundantly satisfy our every need, as the son from heaven who offers us sure guidance and peace and security in the midst of every storm, as the bread from heaven who offers eternal life to all who would believe in him. If you recognise this hunger in yourself, let me urge you this day to come to Jesus, to look to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and to take Jesus into your heart, into your mind, into your very being, and find life in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that this day, above all, uh, that people uh, would... Uh, that each one here uh, would feel as if in some sense they have met with Jesus, your son, and been fed and encouraged encouraged and nourished by him. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing together now.